Welcome to Conversation Beneath the Trees, a podcast bringing together scientists, farmers and innovators from all around Ireland to share their ideas and experiences of farming with trees. I'm your host, Catherine Cleary. I work with trees in urban areas as part of social enterprise Pocket Forests. I love what trees can bring to our land and our lives, and I'm fascinated by the many benefits they offer to farming and food production. This podcast has been produced by the Irish Agroforestry Forum in association with GrowIn. It's funded by the Woodland Support Scheme provided by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. Welcome to episode nine of Conversation Beneath the Trees. In this episode, we'll hear about a small farm outside Ballycastle County, Antrim, and a family who have turned 50 acres into a multi-generational business. So my name is Charlie Cole, uh, and I farm here at Brockhamon Farm uh, with my wife, Becky, uh, my young family, and uh, also mum and dad are, are still about and helping out too. So. And where's Brockhamon Farm? Uh, so we're right up on the north coast, uh, just outside a beautiful little town called Ballycastle. So uh, about five miles from Bushmills. Everyone knows of that because of the whiskey. So The whiskey and, and Brockhamon. And how large, what, what size farm is it? So we're 50 acres. So just a little farm, but does the trick. And I mean, for a 50 acre farm, you're doing a hell of a lot of things. Um, one that caught my eye from, I don't know if you still do these, but I just thought that's one of the best things I've seen on a coffee shop listing was a gorse latte. <laughs> um, do you still do gorse lattes and, and yeah, what the hell are they? Uh, absolutely. So uh, my my wife, uh, Becky, she has, um, she's very into foraging. Uh, she's sort of a self-proclaimed herbalist. Uh, she's just written a book about it as well. Um, but she's always sort of coming up with these sort of weird and wonderful uh, sort of hedgerow ingredients. Um, and like it, it really just sort of, it's our ethos completely through and through. Um, we didn't grow up on the farm. Um, we, we grew up with sort of other, other family members in, in sort of farming industry. Um, but very much our childhood was spent sort of reading books like, you know, John Seymour's books and stuff like that. And always sort of the idea of having a farm was sort of always, always there. And, you know, something like, you know, Dick Strawbridge did that uh, thing on Channel 4 about eco-living and, uh, you know, even the River Cottage series, you know, everything like that was very much sort of uh, aspirational uh, in our sort of childhood and, you know, mom and dad's dream. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. it all it all sort of uh, very much rings true for us. For anybody who doesn't remember, although I remember having his book as well as a kid, who was John Seymour? Uh, John Seymour, who was he? Uh, he? He is someone... A, a lot more inspirational than I realized at the time. Uh, I think they ran a farm outside Wexford in the end, which I think is one of the first biodynamic farms in Ireland. I could be wrong, um, but he would have written, uh, it's very difficult to describe. They're, they're sort of books that are basically like the, the A to Z of how to run a farm and then gave different contexts. So, you know, if you only had an acre what you could do on an acre. If you had two acres, what you would do on two acres. If you had 10 acres, what you would do on that. You know, and it, it was sort of bringing an idea of mm -hmm. sort of sustainable living and, you know, dare I say it's a permaculture and holistic sort of management. Um, so you were telling us about the foraging and Becky's um, book and, and that kind of, it just, I suppose, aspect of the farm that not many people think of really. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, you know, Every part of the farm is there, you know, it's, that's what farming is. It's working with the environment, produce sort of, you know, food and uh, sort of security, isn't it? So 
you know, foraging is very much part of that. And whenever we've been planting hedgerows and things, we've always been considering that as well. So, you know, filling, filling every space we can with something edible, I suppose, or something usable. Um, so yeah, no, um, Becky's influence very much comes into the, you know, the, the cafe, which is very much like our, our customer facing sort of side of the business. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's where it all comes together. What does a gorse latte taste like? Uh, so gorse, um, you know, I'm sure you've smelt them out in the, in the fields, um, smell, smells of, um, coconut. Mm. So you're, you're getting basically a, a sort of a hint of coconut, um, in a syrup. You know, everyone's heard of elderflower cordial, mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty much what you're doing. You're, you're, you're producing a syrup from the gorse flowers, uh, and then using that, you know, much, if you go into every cafe around the country at the moment, you can sort of get a, a shot of vanilla or a shot of, um, what is it at the moment, but Roscoff biscuits, mm. uh, you know, there's sort of that highly sort of processed sugar shot that, um, you know, you get in most coffee shops and basically it's sort of trying to get a more natural and localized version of that. It's, you know, yeah. um, you get people to think a bit more about what they're consuming maybe. Delicious. So, so going back to that idea of being inspired by books, you know, the John Seymour, um, farm what you can and here's what you can do with an acre, et cetera. How did the reality compare to that dream that you had growing up? Yeah, um, so you know, really, we're, we're very lucky here, in which case, in which it was mom and dad's dream, and, and they got the farm, uh, and they set about living sort of the good life. Um, but I think, you know, 50 acres is a little bit more than just the good life. Yeah, and the good um, life being, again, I, for I, younger people, <laughs> I remember the good life, but maybe some of our younger listeners won't. Uh, yeah, again, uh, sort of, uh, it was like a British sitcom thing, which I suppose was probably sort of on replay uh, whenever we were kids because it was from the 70s, but it was a, a couple who lived in um, a sort of cul-de-sac in a sort of semi-detached house. Uh, and in their sort of uh, little garden, front garden and back garden, they, they had a fully-fledged farm. Uh, you know, they had their veg plots and there were pigs in the back garden. It was, you know how sort of you had the, the neighbors who next door were very much about sort of, you know, trying to sort of socially climb. And then the, there were these sort of farming couple next door who were just sort of adamant they were going to be self-sufficient. Um, and again, that was sort of my mum and dad's sort of uh, dream was that sort of sense of self-sufficiency and, you know, returning from something that they had come from because they'd both been born sort of, you know, to farming families, I suppose, and had sort of moved out of it for work. Mm -hmm. um, and they just wanted to go back to it. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, they, they, they bought the farm, um, you know, when I was sort of growing up, probably I was 16 when they bought it and, mm -hmm. you know, it was a nice idea, but I, I was looking at going away to college and I was like, you know, 50 acres, you're not going to really make a living off that. So I went off to study land agency, um, which basically is estate management, um, and sort of thought like, you know, there's not going to be a break into farming here. So I'll go work, you know, on a big farm for someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went and did the course, came back to Northern Ireland. Uh, I was on a, um, estate management sort of, um, uh, apprenticeship thing, I suppose. So I was, there as an apprentice for a year and I realized, you know, it was really, it's the only sort of uh, job role that would have been in Northern Ireland. And I wanted to sort of stay at home, uh, to a certain degree. Um, and I realized that the lad who'd been there the year before me was already sort of lined up to take on the job. So I was like, well. Actually, with all this training and experience, you know, maybe I could make 50 acres work and maybe that is going to be my best sort of start. Um, so yeah, I came, came home, um, started with seaweed harvesting, um, sort of fell into goats, 
Um, mm. We were very lucky. We were put onto a sort of BBC program called Farm Fixer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very lucky for that because uh, Becky saw that. And uh, at that point, she was a fashion blogger. So she wanted to do a piece on the seaweed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, look, I'm going to have to do this interview in person. Uh, so I uh, drove down to Dublin to do the interview and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Dragged her back up to Valley Castle. So, um, so she yeah, interviewed she you? Sort of, uh, she interviewed me, yeah. So uh-huh. did a very good piece. Yeah. So, but uh, no, very much from looking at seaweed as a beauty product, uh, which is something the BBC had sort of pushed us to sort of sell mm-hmm. um, to Fortnum Masons during their sort of filming of the program. Uh, but I was always into it more from a food sort of perspective. Um, so I've, I've not the face to sell beauty products. So surely that's, that's, that's not true at all. Um, that's self-sufficiency. It's funny. It's a phrase that has kind of fallen out of use now, but it, it brings back all kinds of ideas, um, from the, you know, the seventies and the eighties, I suppose at a time of the oil crisis and that feeling of we we didn't mention food security, yes, but food security is now what we talk about. But for farmers, um, I think it's a phrase that might come back into fashion again because that idea of being able to generate everything from your own farm or from your own land um, is something that's very appealing now with rising fertilizer costs and and you know we know the environmental consequences of using a lot of um, inputs. So how? Did you begin? I mean, I love the phrase of fell into goats. How do you fall into goats? So when mum and dad had the farm, we had a, a flock of sort of soe sheep. I mean, you know, these are animals that sort of grew up on the Isles of St. Kilda. They're, they're not much bigger than a hare. Wow. Um, they're an absolute nightmare to look after. Yeah. Um, there was always a menagerie, you know, back at the farm. Uh, and when I was trying to look at different things, I mean, I, I was looking at everything. Um, I'd pretty much settled on farming wild boar. Um, but you know, I was just trying to get my head around how, you know, you could put in six foot electric fencing without turning the farm into Jurassic park and, you know, ruining sort of the amenity value that we have on the farm. Um, and it was when I was doing this, you know, my mom was sort of saying, oh, I, I'd love to have a goat. Um, and not really taking it too seriously. I sort of phoned up the Irish goat society and I said, look, you know, I've, I've read this article over in England, uh, about Billy kids all being, um, uh, but put down at birth because, you know, th- there's no need for them on the dairy farms. And literally they, they turn around and they said, yes, uh, we've got two big dairy farms here. And even better, we, we have a man who'll buy all of the bi- billy kids that you can rear off you. Mm. Um, so I thought, right, let's give it a go. Um, you know, I was a year out of college. I'd been on a placement year, so I hadn't really earned any money there. And, you know, I needed a low cost entry into farming mm-hmm. and the story of the Billy kids, it, you know, not only was it a waste product that there was just something about the fact that, I mean, literally these animals were being euthanized at birth and, you know, back then global food security was big on the table. I had this sort of, uh, sort of built in sort of, uh, sort of knowledge of sort of self-sufficiency and sustainability. And it just really didn't ring right that, you know, you had these big dairy farms and the Billy kids were literally all just being, you know, chucked out the back door. Like it, it was just atrocious. Yeah. Uh, and I thought like, you know, like I'd love to be an organic farmer, but on 50 acres, I've not got the scale to make it work, but this is a 
this is a way that we could farm with a bigger piece behind it. You know, the, that story was a story that needed to be told. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I couldn't be organic, at least this way, morally, I was doing something right, you know, mm -hmm. as, as well as just farming. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed to ring true. And uh, so, yeah, we, we set about doing it. And obviously that required a culture shift with consumers to uh, come to the idea of eating goat meat, which is very, you know, it's, it's widely consumed across the world, but not so much maybe in Ireland. Did that feel like a difficult task? Yeah, I mean, we, we were very lucky. Mum and dad travelled all over the world uh, and we went with them when we were younger. Um, and so we had always tried, you know, no matter what country we were in, we tried, you know, whatever the local foodstuffs were, you know. Uh, and for us, the idea of eating goat was not weird at all. But we understood that it wasn't something that was done culturally, you know, in the UK or in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And we felt that actually, you know, we tried it and it was delicious, you know, so all it required was that step change or, you know, step to be taken and people's attitude towards it would change. Um, we knew it wasn't going to be easy, um, you know, not the easiest anyway, mm. but we didn't think it would be as hard as it maybe was. Um, you know, we thought people would be open-minded and give it a go. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, like. It's been a bit of everything, really. Um, I, I mean, to put it in perspective, the, 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 the man that we were given as a contact who would buy all the goats, we reared 20 to start with. Uh, unfortunately, he was Iranian and things were kicking off in Iran. He had to go back out and help his family and stuff. So immediately we lost the, you know, the market contacts that he had mm. um, uh, within his own local community, uh, which you know, was a guaranteed sale for us. Mm -hmm. So... We uh, basically turned around and uh, put them all into burgers and we took them down to Tessie's and Ballycastle um, during the Lammas Fair. So the Lammas Fair is sort of the biggest sort of, or the, the oldest Irish sort of well, horse trading fair. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, the town's jam-packed. So we took it down to the pub. Uh, we set up and, you know, on a Friday, tried to sell these burgers. You know, Friday passed and not a single burger was sold. Uh, some poor fella sort of, drunkenly stumbles up to us later that evening, the bad end of a dare or something, has the burger and he's like, Jesus, this is the best burger I've ever had. Uh, and, you know, passes it around the bar, everyone has a bite and, you know, we sold out that weekend. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that, that's the silly thing. You know, it sort of took a bit of Dutch courage um, and everyone realized that actually, you know, it was really, really tasty. <laughs> um, and so I suppose from that, we learned that, you know, if we were going to sell it, you had to put it into a form that was sort of synonymous for everyone. And, mm -hmm. you know, everyone will eat a burger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe it's, it just requires a few beers before you can try it. Um, so, you know, we then started doing farmer's markets and we always knew we had to have the street food trailer or the hot food on the side to get people to try it at the same time. Mm. Um, but then at the other end of the scale, uh, after a couple of months of trading, um, we had this old fella come down from, from the glens, uh, and he was like, oh, are you, are you the guys that do the goat meat? He's like, I'm after some goat meat. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we do that. It's like, you know, out of interest, uh, there's a lot of people up on the coast here who, um, you know, that have maybe gone uh, out as farm advisors to Saudi Arabia or something like that. So I was, in, you know, inquiring. I was like, you know, why are you after the goats? Uh, and he's very interesting story. He said, look, you know, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as artificial milk replacer. We were big sheep farmers, uh, and we always kept nanny goats. Um, sheep, uh, they won't, um, 
you know, they won't let a lamb that's not theirs suckle, whereas goats will let anything suckle. Mm -hmm. So you, a herd of nanny goats, and if you had any lamb uh, orphans, you could put them onto the nanny goats. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says he remembers as a kid, any of the Billy kids were put onto their table. And mm -hmm. he said it was the best meat that he ever ate. And uh, he, he wanted to relive that childhood memory. Yeah. And it, it's amazing, you know, how there, there is, you know, we say that culturally we don't eat it, but culturally we did. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, there's two world wars, an industrialization of a food chain, and we've forgotten what we used to eat. Mm -hmm. And we used to be self-sufficient and we work closely with nature and we just don't anymore. Amazing. Um, and it's amazing how people forget that. So. so using those parts of the food chain that aren't valued and putting value back into them is a huge part of your, your business model. Where, where do trees come into your farm? Uh, so we're, we're up here, what, five miles from, from the, the, the sea. Um, you know, if, if it's windy anywhere else in Ireland, it is windy here. Uh, and there were no trees here when we got the farm. Um, the, the previous uh, owner had very bad arthritis and unfortunately couldn't get round to see the farm. Uh, he had left it, the, the sort of, um, the tenants were to replace fences, look after sort of boundaries. Uh, there was a very good ring fence around the whole thing, but internally there wasn't much. Uh, and I, I don't know for how many years dairy cattle had sort of trodden across everything, but you know, mm -hmm. shucks were down, walls were down, um, drainage was blocked. Um, you know, streams have been completely poached in on either side. Um, so yeah, uh, any hedgerows that were there, you know, they had been scratched against or pushed through, uh, and it was very, very barren, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the classic sort of, uh, intro of sort of, uh, a Hawthorn hedge sort of 12 foot tall, but sort of leaning at an almost sort of 90 degrees because of the mm -hmm. wind. Um, so, you know, if you're putting stock out at that, you can see, you know, if they're standing in a field, they're trying to shelter mm -hmm. and there was no shelter. Um. So yeah, um, I think the first thing mum and dad did was they, they planted sort of any sort of, there was a couple of weird pockets of land that were too wet for anything. So they planted them up with trees, you know, for them more for amenity value. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, coming onto the back of that, we realized, you know, the benefits of that started joining up pockets of trees with uh, hedgerows, providing wildlife corridors, um, you know, any, any opportunity we had, we used. So, uh, you know, any of the farming schemes, you know, that was beneficial because that provided a fence as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then trees on the land, we used that as well for a couple of pockets of woodlands. Um, and then, yeah, when I came home, I really started looking at more of the agroforestry side of things and, you know, what other benefits we could get. Um, even back then when we were planting, you know, hedgerows, there was always, you know, the demand for whitethorn. We were always trying to throw in as much blackthorn as we could because, you know, you were getting slows from that and there was always the vision that. You know, there's a product at the end of that, you know, there's something marketable. Mm -hmm. So we're always focused on, you know, something has to, you know, it has to work Earn somehow. Keep, wipe its um, face. And the slows, do, there are now slows on the farm? Uh, yeah. So uh, last two years, we've had uh, really good crops. So mm -hmm. They're not an easy crop to pick, I would imagine. Very thorny. Very, very thorny. Uh, but uh, it's amazing you know, how, how long it's taken just for stuff to get established as well. Um, mm. you, you would see, you know, where the first pockets of woodlands went in and they then provided a bit of shelter and, you know, the trees behind them have suddenly shot up. 
but you know the, the very first trees are just so stunted um, mm-hmm. but yeah no there's a there's a plan for the slows in the long in the long term but excellent i don't no. know what yeah you're not going to reveal it just yet to us and how how have the animals so so it's you've gone from goats to having cattle as well so you've got uh again yeah, so um we've we very much uh you know focused on uh direct to market um we, we did try selling via um restaurants mm-hmm. uh that was our sort of initial idea was rear the animal send it away jobs are good but there wasn't the interest locally in that so we started doing farmers markets built our own butchery uh very much went direct to consumer and to be honest it was the best thing we did um within a year of doing the goats uh we started on veal um so we realized you know it's ex- exactly the same story uh, as the kid goats you know these are all males that were sort of byproducts of a, a wider dairy industry um our, our veal's all free range. Uh, it's rosé veal, so high welfare. So, so the hardest thing that we found with uh, the rose veal, um, you know, it, it's exactly the same product as the the billy goat markets. Um, but you know, during the eighties, there was a huge campaign against veal, and there's this you know really strong preconceived perception of what veal is, uh, and you know, it really isn't what it was. Uh, and you know, no matter how much we tried to sort of uh, show people that you know Roseville is you know, symbolic of it being higher welfare. Ours is one step; it's further; it's free range, and you know there is still very much that strong uh, attitude against veal. Um, I think slowly attitudes are changing. Um, you know, Ireland and the UK we have a very big dairy sector. White veal would have been very popular back in the seventies. Uh, you're talking about uh, bull calves being reared in very sort of small. Uh, spaces often dark, um, only digesting milk. Um, you know that the, 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 there's three stomachs in a calf or in a cow. Uh, so if you're milk feeding, it's going into the front one. Um, you end up with a very anemic animal. You know the the, the meat is very white, um, and it was banned in the 70s. Um, you know under EU law, but it still happened in sort of uh, you know back back door sort of. On, on the sly. Um, so it was quite right that there was a campaign against it. Um, but the big problem it created uh, was that it basically rendered um, the bull calf as surplus to requirements. You know, there was no market for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, it resulted in a huge number of them being put down. And I suppose, you know, what this Roseville um, sort of drive is trying to do is it's trying to recreate a market for them, but a higher welfare market. Um, so by being rosé, uh, they've effectively uh, started using the second stomach. So they're on solids. They're, they're eating sort of uh, hay and uh, a bit of cereal um, and starting to ruminate. And that's what gives it a pinker hue. Um, so then that's normally done in big sort of straw, straw-filled straw barns. Uh, and that's marketed as rosé veal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ours is one step further. And ours are all out on grass. So they're free-ranging too. Um, well, And, you know, really it's trying to sort of, I suppose... For us, it's trying to show the, the, the public, you know, what the consequences of their consumer or their consumption is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if we're going to drink milk or if we're going to have a large dairy sector and look at exporting a lot of dairy, we are going to be stuck with a lot of bull calves. And focus is starting to be paid on that. You know, uh, compassion and world farming 
Um, you know, there's a big campaign against the live exports of bull calves. Um, a lot of a lot of calves, uh, if they're not euthanized, they're being sent uh, out to Europe for uh, the veal sector. Um, and I think now as well, you're starting to see that you know dairy cross uh, bred calves are starting to squeeze the suckler industry. Uh, and I think there really is you know a lot to be said for rearing uh, rose veal uh, in the country uh, and sending them out by hook rather than by sending them out you know live. Mm -hmm. um, you know we felt that was important to sort of highlight. You know. We'll just take a break there after the first half of episode nine. I love the story about his first sale being the result of a drunken dare. In the next half, we're going to hear how Charlie continues to promote Rose Veal and where he's using trees to maximize his productive space. So we were talking about the, yes, the resistance to veal. What was there a breakthrough with um, veal in terms of, again, people just liking the taste of it? No, I, th I think there's still very much barriers there. Um, but I do think for, for ourselves as a business, you know, we only produce as much as we can sell. And we're not big enough to try to convert you know, the entire population to eat veal. Uh, but very much we're out there doing farmer's markets, you know, selling it through our burger trailer and our street food. And it is definitely a slog to do that. You know, we have our regular customers who are converted mm -hmm. uh, and that's nice and easy. And they are regular customers. They love what we do. They understand it all. Um, so definitely for, for our own customers, you know, as soon as someone's converted, they understand the story. They're very much there uh, and, and mm -hmm. you know, love what we do. Uh, but no matter what market we go to, we will always have a customer come up, you know, and very much be like, you know, what are you doing? You know, how could you do that? And it's very much a case that we're mm -hmm. still having to explain the story. Uh, and, you know, that is very difficult to try to explain to someone that what they think is fact is maybe not entirely correct. And to sort of try to, and, you know, we've definitely found, you know, wherever we've tried to wholesale a product, it becomes that much harder because mm. we are not there as a person to sell and to explain and to tell that story. No matter how much literature you put on a packet, um, you know, it, you, you need that sort of you person can't. there to, to help with that transition. Yeah, you can't beat the face-to-face. -face. Um, how, uh, how much of a necessary thing is it to be selling directly to make a living from a 50-acre farm? Um, that's my first question. And, and the second part of that question is, what, what would you say to a farmer who says, I can't do that. You know, I can farm, but I'm not a salesperson. How difficult is it to be both? It's difficult to say. I mean, you know, I'm not having to go in and broker deals. Uh, so, you know, it, it, nothing on that side. But, you know, being on farm with markets, it's much easier because, you know, very much you're, you're, you're creating a relationship with the customer. Uh, and that's easy because, you know, all you have to do is tell your story and explain what you do and, you know, be relatively amicable and not grumpy on the day. Uh, that's easy. Um, and you know, I think the wonderful thing we've got is we've got a good story and we've got a good product. So that definitely helps. Uh, but definitely my comfort zone is, is on the farms. Mm. And how much of your time is split between farming and, and the business end of things? Uh, I never stop with the business end of things. Um, I've, I've recently just purchased a hands-free headset, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, because you can be out in the field sort of moving pigs and, and still take sort of business calls. Um, but we we would probably, every Saturday is market day. Uh, so mm -hmm. I would 
do uh, Temple Bar Market in Dublin. Uh, my mum would do St. George's Markets. Uh, during the uh, summer, we would then have a burger trailer out um, probably every other weekend. Um, and then farm shops open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, so we try not to be doing too many farming sort of activities on those three days, um, just for health and safety, really, more than anything. Um, and then we've got the website. So the website is you know, running all the time, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. It's a really nice way of working, um, but really difficult to, you know, get over people's um, preconceived perceptions of, you know, how sort of internet shopping works. Um, you know, the likes of Prime, Next Day Delivery, um, 24-hour chat rooms, you know, everyone very much expects uh, automation. And, you know, no matter how many times on our sort of, um, you know, procedure to get through to the checkouts and even on the emails thereafter, it says, you know, it can take up to two weeks. And, you know, people are still very much sort of of the mindset that it's order and it's here the following day. Um, yeah. But, no, so. So making making connections with your customers, do you get good feedback on your on the stalls? Uh, yeah, no, really good feedback. Um, really good feedback. Uh, the, the only time we ever have an issue, like I say, is is with the website and people are sort of because again, you don't have that personal connection maybe with the website. But um, it's amazing how blunt people can be in a first email. And uh, where's my niece? Yeah, very much. So. Literally <laughs> that. And then you explain, look, I'm very sorry, but you know, uh, it's all done to order and it's hung for two weeks and therefore it will be here on this date. Um, and it does sort of say that in you know, all, all the order process. And they're like, oh, very sorry. That's perfect. No, I was just wondering. Like, <laughs> read, read the details of the uh, emails right too. <laughs> and you, you talk about regenerative agriculture on your website. Um, what does that mean on Brookham and how does it... How does it manifest itself? Yeah, I mean, regenerative farming is very much uh, something that we're very proactive with. Uh, And I'm amazed, you know, uh, we've been doing this for 10 years now and, you know, how our sort of vision of the good life and sustainability and how a lot of those principles, you know, and organic principles, I suppose, have also merged into this concept of regeneration. Uh, But I do like the, the way the phrase is used and it suggests that actually, you know, there's a lot more to, you know, sustaining is just the status quo, whereas actually regenerative is, uh, you know, putting something back. Um, so I like the way there's been that change in mindset of conversation. Um, and it looks at that sort of, you know, deeper thought process. Um, for us on the farm, I suppose really sort of the journey down that sort of rabbit hole started with the goats and um, trying to get the goats outside. They don't graze well on grass. So we went down the route of herbal lays uh, just to get woodier species, you know, things that they would prefer to consume. Uh, mm-hmm. And we went down that route. Um, Explain herbal lays to a non-farmer. So for a non-farmer, uh, a normal grass field has three varieties in it and a herbal lay has at least 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving away from a traditional grass species to something which is a lot more leguminous so it's got uh peas uh, or vetches or clovers uh which would fix nitrogen uh, so you're basically moving something which is self-sufficient <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. to a degree um but also you're then changing your grazing practices as well so you're you're looking at sort of fixing carbon and 
uh, sort of you're getting fr- flowering varieties in there, so you're doing a lot more for pollinators uh, and just more biodiversity as well. Um, mm-hmm. you, you get an extended raising season, both at the start and the end. Um, like you know, the benefits are sort of numerous. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Similar to what you're finding with agroforestry as well, in terms of extended grazing seasons and animals feeling happier in fields. Exactly that, and then you know the same that we're finding by you know farming a variety of different animals on the farm as well, rather than just having you know all your eggs from one basket. So yeah, mm. and I mean that's that's the big um, shift that seems to be becoming the thing that people are thinking about moving away from a monoculture farm, whether it's just you know you're just a broccoli farm or a a dairy farm that actually mixing other kinds of farming into your holding is is a much more resilient system um, in all kinds of ways, economically and environmentally. What would you say to a farmer who has been maybe doing one thing for a number of years um, about trying something new? Is it is it best to start small with something new, or uh, you know what what's the best way to start? Yeah, I mean it, it very much depends on the enterprise that you're going into. You know. I've, if you're a broccoli farmer and you find that there's a market in, you know, I don't know, like a pea or a bean crop where immediately it's going to benefit your, uh, you know, your rotation, but at the same time, you've got a guaranteed market, you know, it's so similar that you can jump straight into it and, you know, mm. do it in a big way. But, you know, if it's something alternative, which, you know, very much the marketplace is a little bit more risky, then yeah, take your time. Um, and for sure, you know, that's where it's been for us. It's taken 10 years to get where we're at and we're only just starting to make it really work. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot to do on the farm, you know, no matter what enterprise we started into. Uh, so yeah, I think it, 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 it just depends on the farmer and you know, their context really. So, mm-hmm. And tell me about the veg production, because that's something, um, it, you know, talking to horticulture growers and, um, you know, they, they just seems to be such a struggle. There's, you know, 400 down to 100 in the last 20 years. And, you know, this, those 100 are really hanging on by their fingernails. Is it, again, a direct sale thing that, that makes it viable? Yeah, I mean, we're uh, one, two, three, four. This is our fourth year growing a two-acre veg plot. So by no means are we on a big scale. Um, it's very much gone from, a, you know, we used to have a self-sufficient sort of concept of uh, sort of, I mean, it was probably 12 foot by eight foot plot. Uh, and, you know, the man hours that went into that were actually quite intensive. And, mm-hmm. you know, with a little bit of mechanization would have worked on, on a larger field scale. So we, we increased the capacity and um, we're, we're basically using it as part of our, our reseeding rotation. Uh, and it is our brassica break. Uh, in terms of sales at the other end, it's definitely not going to make our business. Um, I think location wise, we're, we're not near a city, um, and trying to sort of get a marketplace that interested in it is very difficult. Um, but we're going to persevere, you know, it's there for our personal consumption as well. Um, but, but that at the moment, I suppose is probably the stronger driver than the market force. Um, uh, but the, you know, it's like the goats, the more we do it, the more interest there is in it. Um. And you know we can bring the market with us. Mm-hmm. So, and are people interested in how you're farming, or you know, is there only so much headspace people have to find out about where their food is coming from? It is there more of an interest now? Do you think post pandemic in where food is coming from? 
it's, uh, that's a very difficult question. Um, you know, there's always that concept of uh, the Twitter bubble, whereby you only talk to people that are interested in things that you're interested in. Um, we do a lot to try to put ourselves out there. Um, and, you know, we've definitely got core customers who very much, we are their bubble and they are our bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, same time, we would open up the farm to do things like a Santa experience or Halloween, um, pumpkin picking, things like that, where we try to get people who are maybe outside of their comfort zone to come onto the farm and experience it. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them are very, very impressed. A lot of them didn't realize, you know, so the more that we can do that sort of stuff, you know, open farm, Saturday, things like that, mm -hmm. the more we can engage to a wider community, the better. Um, we also take part in a lot of sort of, uh, farming sort of focus groups. Uh, so we get a lot of farmers come visit, uh, and a lot of them, you know, increasingly, you know, the carbon footprint is sort of pushed forward to the forefront. A lot of them are thinking of, you know, what environmental changes they can make. And a lot of them are interested in what we do. Um, and you know, it's amazing, you know, the older ones say, uh, you know, I remember the, what we, uh, the way we used to run the farm. It was very similar, you know. We always had a few pigs and, you know, they were there for the household and, you know, the, the older ones, they remember that system, but it's just moved away as, as like you say, you know, the economics of it meant that people had to become streamlined. Um, and they then, you know, like you say, if they only grew one variety of broccoli now, sort of 30, 40 years down the line the environmental impacts of that are starting to be seen on the farms and they're creaking and actually they've realized it's not sustainable it's not holistic and they need to rethink it um but it'll take 30 to 40 years to shift it back again you know mm -hmm. farms quickly um unfortunately mm. you've talked about uh, um i think in the in the blog on the website you've talked about the importance of keeping livestock in a farming uh picture that they're an important part of the system is there is there now a move away from you know is there now a sort of future of, that's going to be vegan because people are so concerned about the damaging effects of livestock and do you feel that you know there's a story that farmers can tell about a uh, regenerative regenerative farming of livestock or you know what you're doing that that's going to save it if you like from a, from a very uh strange or different future uh i i am no scientist but i think as humans we like to oversimplify things and you know even in farming we like to think that you know it's a system you know you've got inputs your processes you've got outputs but you know the world is a lot more complicated than that it is it is a food web and there are many different trophic levels of it and you know i think uh, animals and livestock and humans are all in that web and you know you need all of it for its function at you know it's it's uh, at its highest output as it were um, you know biodiversity is key to abundancy uh, and i think there'll always be a place for for animals and livestock in that system um you know if you then hone in on sort of one element of that system and you would take something like wild deer and the population of wild deer, you know, in a certain area, there is only a certain capacity for deer uh, in the natural environment. And, you know, without top level predators, uh, you need some form of population control before they get out of control. Uh, and when we say out of control, 
you know, it's not necessarily deers running rampant and sort of standing in the way of cars. It's, it was the context of, you know, if they overgraze an area, you're going to end up with um, starvation, disease, uh, and an unhealthy population. Uh, and I think, you know, there is always going to be a requirement for population management. And, you know, that management is, is a food source. You know, it's, it's the movement of energy through those trophic levels. And yeah, just to me, it's like, it's just part of the natural world. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think like technology or it's, you know, it's going to change human interaction with the world. I think, you know, livestock will always be part of it. And that's, that's my perception on it. Mm -hmm. So you're 10 years into this, um, project is, is it, uh, what are, what's the difference on the, the land now you described the farm when your parents first uh move there uh yeah. so what's what's it looking like and feeling like now i would say it was windswept and barren when we first came here uh very much like uh you know the sort of sort of images you see of sort of like windswept sort of iceland or something like that um very cold uh, and now you know we've pockets of trees that are 15 years old and they are probably in around 20 foot tall uh, and then we've got pockets of trees behind that, which are only seven years old and they're the same height. Uh, and it's amazing how just, you know, that, that shelter that's created by the first groups then, you know, enables the next group to grow, uh, hedgerows, uh, we've, we've got, uh, they're all planted by us. The first lot were laid, uh, uh probably three, four years ago, they're green, big, green, bushy hedges. Now, uh, I've got more to lay this winter. Yeah, it's all starting to sort of take shape and look more abundant and yeah, just beautiful, great to work with. I love it. So, yeah. That's self-sufficiency. Describe the act of, of laying a hedge, what, what's involved. It's it's a hard job. I've never seen anybody do it. I've watched lots it of the videos. Um, what, one of my uncles was a, a farmer in Dorset and uh, all the hedges there were laid. And I remember spending childhood sort of helping him lay them uh, and it was great activity. So continued it here um and it's amazing you know how stock proof a hedge can be um for us we're starting from scratch um you know planting a whip um i would just leave it be until it's probably about seven or eight foot tall mm -hmm. uh go through you know probably no thicker than about sort of an inch to two inches mm -hmm. uh go through and you lay um uphill so anything which is on the underside of the tree, once laid, you cut off because it can only grow vertically. Uh, and then you, uh, you, you just nick the bottom of the stem about sort of two, three inches above the ground and then just gently bend it. Uh, there's enough flexibility in a green shoot that it'll sort of half snap, half bend. And then in the spring, you'll get all the regrowth. Um, and it just, it's like an impermeable barrier. A, li a living sense, you know, a lot of people have sort of played around with willow to make living fences. So same concept. Yeah. Amazing. And that's something that you remember your uncle doing when you were a child. So you're, yes. you're carrying on oh, a family tradition. Very much so. We used to go out and help him. That was a, yeah. <laughs> so the other part of regeneration is generation. And, and a lot of um, farmers would like to see their farms going to their next generation. Are your, your, your boys are very small, but do you think they are going to be farmers in the future? 
Oh, I, I have absolutely no idea. That'll be thrown to the sides. I can just cross my fingers and hope um, because definitely it's a multi-generational investment. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of in- ingenuitive ideas coming out of um, sort of different parts of the world for sort of succession and things and bringing the next sort of uh, group of farmers on. So um, I think Conacre makes things a little bit difficult for us in Northern Ireland for sort of new entrants and stuff but yeah i don't know we'll see what the future brings uh you know we were talking about reading earlier um that's sort of soon turned into youtube scrolling and general sort of googling um and i love the works of um richard perkins there uh stephen briggs uh and wakelands they were three sort of very inspirational agroforestry projects that i was looking at um and I sort of phoned them all up, had a chat to them and tried to sort of put into context what I was doing on the farm. Uh, for us at the farm, a third of it is sort of arable slash silage ground. Mm-hmm. A third of it would be sort of more newer grasses, uh, but small fields. And then one third is species rich grasslands. So sort of a very, very good habitats. Um, and the more I looked at this context of agroforestry, I sort of realized that, you know, for a lot of places in Ireland, we already have agroforestry. We just haven't labeled it as such. You know, we have very small field parcel sizes. And as a result, on the outside of those, we have hedges and we have trees in an ideal situation uh, and where they maintain. So you've already got quite a wooded landscape if it was maintained that way. And as we've reinstated the field boundaries and replanted hedges and trees, the more I realized that you were sort of closing in those parcels and those fields. But it did leave the three bigger fields, uh, which were arable and silage ground, where I was like, you know, there is potential on those fields to incorporate more trees um, without inhibiting, you know, the farming activity. Um, now, the schemes up here, they were very much pushing an eight by eight tree planting basis. And you know, if you're going down that route, you're very much ending up with a closed canopy cover and any form of sort of soil working is going to be lost. Plus, track, you know, we don't have much in the form of machinery here. So, you know, any contractor nowadays has a big tractor and he does not want to get close to a tree. Mm-hmm. And with an 8 by 8 spacing, you're going to struggle to get a tractor through to do, you know, grass work and stuff. And even then, you're only going to be able to do that in the, the early years. So. For the big fields here, I was looking at more along the lines of what Stephen Briggs was doing with a big sort of, uh, I think he was 24 meter spacing. Um, now he's East Anglia and, you know, it's very big machinery out there. So I phoned around the local contractors and I worked out that in reality, you know, you're not going to get anything bigger than 18 meters in any of our fields. Mm-hmm. So uh, I worked on an 18 meter workable area. I added a meter on either end. Uh, as a buffer, so you're up to 20 meter gaps, and then the trees that we were going to plant, we're going to have a three meter spread. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're 23 meter spacings uh, that we planted the trees, uh, and then they then follow a north south line. So you're maximizing your soil gain for whatever you plant in between the trees. Um, now, looking at sort of agroforestry, you can go sort of two ways. You go down the food route or you go down the timber production route. And for us, for the scale that it was at and for uh, the diversification activities that we've already taken with the the farm shop and stuff, 
uh, you know, looking at fruits made the most sense. And I also felt that because we were using this to showcase a different way of doing agroforestry, it was going to be easier to show farmers uh, an activity which produced food product. Uh, so we planted uh, apple trees, uh, pear trees, plum trees, damsons on a six meter spacing in our north south lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and underneath those, uh, we planted in uh, fruiting bushes. So you're then going for sort of your sort of uh, forest edge biomimicry there, where you've got your sort of upper canopy of a, a tree. Uh, now, in theory, the upper canopy was around the edges. So that would be. Uh, pine trees or beech trees or, or um, you know, what was already existing in the hedgerow. And then your mm -hmm. lower is what was within the field, and that was your fruit trees. And then below that, you've got your sub canopy, which was then, you know, um, gooseberries, uh, black currants, uh, with a few red currants, a few soft fruit bushes, but uh, they were more, um, we had a feeling they wouldn't be as successful as soft fruit. We didn't want to get into the, the realms of netting and outside of things. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's worked well. We're pleased. Uh, you know, the, the, um, until the trees grow bigger, we're getting an extra cut of silage, uh, between the rows, uh, cause you're working on some three meter spacings with machinery. Um, all the contractors have been through it and it works really well. Um, mm -hmm. the only issue you might have in the future is if, uh, was low emission slurry spreading. You would go down the route of getting sort of, uh, uh an umbilical system. Uh, because you'd have to turn at the headlands. But most of the people that or contractors around us, they, they all have tankers with triple bars. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was just trying to sort of think, you know, the, the practical sort of farm end coming into it as well and, and trying to get them to sort of meet in the middle. Um, but no, we, we love it. It's, it's a great system. It leaves us with, um, you know, the field is there. It can be put into barley. It can be put into a survivable. Uh, but at the same time, all, all the big grass machinery can still work around it. Uh, we're getting fantastic fruit products at the other end. Now uh, you're already uh, getting fruit. Uh, so gooseberries, uh, black currants, um, the red currants and white currants started this year. Uh, we had one apple. Mm. So it, it, unfortunately, it fell the off. first of many. Hopefully, first the first of many. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so no, we're excited for it and. You know, there's opportunities there that we get customers on site. They go out and pick the, the fruit. Um, if if it doesn't sell well, that the following week we can pick it and sell it through the veg uh, shed. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, you know, whatever's left can then go into the cafe and be turned into sort of um, you know jam tarts or something like that. So you know, we we've got three picks of the fruit, as it were, to 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 sell it. Uh, so that's that's the plan. It'll work well for us. And, you know, you could see that scaling up, um, you know, if there are more farmers involved, you know, getting a cooperative hub from yeah. which you can process and sell the products. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So uh, many things you could get from that. Juices, all kinds of uh, smoothies, everything. Yeah. Exactly that. Like so, so much potential. I mean, the, the hardest thing is, is uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're working on four acres there, but if you were to look at larger tranches of land, you could plant it in a way that was machine harvestable, uh, mm -hmm. whereas we're very much uh, hand harvestable. And so, you know, with scale, you know, comes uh, those benefits. But yeah, it's worked well. We, we enjoy working with that. We had a few issues with livestock at the very beginning. It's in a field that we never, ever see deer in. Mm -hmm. uh, and typical, you go plant fruit trees and 
I, I don't know whether they can smell the um, the nutrients in it, but straight up for it. And we lost a few tips of apple trees in the first year. Um, we also, uh, the cattle are all really, really well um, electric fence trained. Um, but because the deer then moved in, uh, they spooked the cattle and the cattle didn't break out of the electric fencing. Uh, so we've now gone for what was mobile fencing to having uh, uh, three strain, strands of strained electrified wire uh, mm -hmm. down the outsides. Um, but no, it, it, it all ties in quite well. So, And it's not Jurassic Park, going back to your earlier... Oh, it's not Jurassic Park, no, um, yeah. because the electric wire is uh, so thin, you, you can't see it. Mm -hmm. So it works really well. Mm. Uh, you, you can still see the, the beautiful trees through the fields, so... And they will be. Gosh, blossom season is, is going to be amazing in next spring then. Oh, exactly. No, can't wait. So it'll be good. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Turley. No I'm glad we talked about that. That, that was, sounds fantastic. Um, and uh, what I love is that that idea of kind of tiers of food production. So you've got, you know, the trees, the shrubs, and you've still got something coming from the ground layer as well in terms of crops. So you yeah, really exactly. are maximizing your, your output. It's through 3D farming, isn't it? It's that concept of sort of getting, uh, you know, a crop from different levels. So yeah, yeah. yeah you know, there's potential. We we've used wood chip as a mulch around the base of them, and uh, when I get time, I'm going to inoculate some mushrooms and fire them in through there as well to see what we get. But uh, that's that's more just for a little bit of fun than anything sort of commercial. Amazing. Have you come across the Ramiel wood chip idea? You know, this is wood chip from branches rather than stems of trees. It's supposed to be. Much more yeah, no, rich. Yeah, no, I have. Yeah, I've come across that as well. We actually, um, because of the quantity that we uh, require and that our woodland isn't mature enough on site, uh, we've got a very good deal with um, local tree surgeons. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're always looking for places to dump wood chip. And if you're only after a small amount, they'll charge you for it as if it's a premium product. But if mm -hmm. you can turn around to them and say, look, here's a space. Anytime you've got a full van, feel free to dump it. Um, yeah. they, they just get rid of it so they're more than happy to use it. Excellent. So well. you solve, solve a problem for them. Love it. Great, Charlie. Thank you so much. That was really comprehensive and very, very interesting. You can find out more about Charlie Cole and Bergamond Farm on bergamond.com. If you'd like to taste the farm, get yourself to a variety of places, including indie food, Mike's Fancy Cheese, the Temple Bar Food Market on a Saturday, and online direct from the farm. Just don't expect stay delivery. Find out more about the Irish Agroforestry Forum as well as their latest news and events on irishagroforestry, all one word, dot IE. Listen to all of our episodes on your favourite audio platforms, including Spotify and iTunes. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to and share our podcast to spread the word far and wide. This podcast has been produced by the Irish Agroforestry Forum in association with Growin. It is funded by the Woodland Support Scheme provided by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. I'm your host, Catherine Cleary, and you can find out more about my work with Pocket Forest at pocketforest.ie. This podcast was produced and edited by Karishma Kasurakor from The Curated Pod. This project was supported and led by Maureen Kilgore, Project Coordinator for Agroforestry Education and Promotion, the Irish Agroforestry Forum. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Conversation Beneath the Trees as much as we've loved chatting with our guests. Thanks for listening. <laughs>